0: Greetings and salutations and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to the business of law and how we as lawyers can improve access to legal services for everyone. Each week we interview thought leaders in the legal profession on how lawyers can evolve with the times and ultimately live more fulfilled lives. On the show this week, we are delighted to have on Ken Murphy, the founder and CEO of Iris. Ken earned his law degree from Queen's University in 1999, but instead of pursuing the traditional path of practicing at a law firm, Ken launched his own startup, just as the dot-com bubble was about to burst, which needless to say, made it a very difficult time to be a founder. While Ken's first startup didn't achieve the success he was hoping for, he was able to parlay that experience into a product development role at Thomson Reuters Canada, where he has worked in various capacities for the past 20 years. Although achieving professional success in his career, in 2018, the entrepreneurial bug came calling once again. Ken combined his knowledge of product development and his interest in how AI and machine learning could be used in the insolvency industry and used that to found Iris, a company looking to revolutionize the lengthy and costly insolvency and restructuring process. My conversation with Ken covers a lot of ground, including why Ken chose not to pursue private practice after law school, the problem Ken saw in the insolvency space that inspired him to found Iris, And of course, the future of legal tech and some of the implications this will have on future practitioners. As you will hear, Ken is an engaging speaker and we look forward to watching Iris grow. And Ken, if you ever need legal help with your startup, fret not because I just happen to know a couple good lawyers. All right, that's it for me. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Ken, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good, Matt. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, our pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time. Always, uh, always a pleasure having someone on who can speak to the legal tech space in law, as it is a emerging area and something that obviously we at Good Lawyer are very interested in. But I think just to jump in right away here for people who don't know who you are. Maybe you can just give a quick introduction about yourself and just how you got into legal tech and of course, how you decided to start your new company, Iris.
1: Uh, Sure. No, thanks. So yeah, my name is Ken Murphy and I am the founder and CEO of Iris, which stands for Insolvency and Restructuring Intelligent Search. Hopefully that uh, enables me to talk a little bit about legal t- tech. <laughs> um, my background is in law, so I have uh, my law degree, but for almost all of my career, I have worked in product development with Thomson Reuters, which years ago was, uh, was Carswell. So right. I've been working on the bankruptcy and solvency portfolio since uh, 2004, And that's kind of how I got involved in the insolvency uh, area. So I've seen a lot of change over the years and have a lot of opportunity to speak to a lot of different people in the industry. And Thomson Reuters being kind of the the largest uh, provider of legal services in the world with Westlaw and a bunch of their other legal uh, technology. That's kind of where I, I came from and, and my interest in, in the legal tech field.
0: Excellent. And so I'm kind of curious, from what our previous conversations, you chose not to practice as a lawyer after you graduated law school. Is that correct? You kind of jumped right into another entrepreneurial venture prior to you joining Thomson Reuters. I'm just curious, what made you decide to go that way?
1: <laughs> it's kind of a, a bit of a story. So whether I chose not to or, or just didn't work out, i I was one of the unfortunate few who before I graduated, I did not have an articling position lined up. And at that point I was actually going to go and get my master's, my master's of law and kind of started exploring uh, that route. And then I was talking to uh, an old classmate of mine who was starting up a a legal business, a legal tech business. And uh, this was in, you know, 99, 2000. So <laughs> right the worst time when the first dot com bubble was uh, about to burst, but I thought that would be a kind of a really cool thing to thing to do. So whether the practice of law didn't really necessarily appeal to me after going through bar ads and, and things like that, or just I was looking for something else to to do to occupy my right. time. So that's kind of where that came from. And that, that ended up um, not being a uh, a successful venture we spent about two or three years uh, building up that business which was focused on legal information for lay people for the for the general public right. but that led me to to carswell slash thompson reuters and in that business because they were just getting ready to launch their westlaw canada version so i kind of had that technology background too
0: right Well, we may have to pick your brain on that because obviously what we're doing at Good Lawyer here involves a lot of client education too, is like kind of explaining because a lot of times people go into this black box of law and don't (laughs) really know exactly what they need or even why they need it. And sometimes when they get the bill at the end, it can be, uh, you know a few hundred to a few thousand dollars. And and obviously up from there, having to be able to explain it in uh, clearly understandable terms. Hey, this is why we did it. Here's the value you're getting. That's one of our, uh, I wouldn't say one of our chief problems, but certainly something that we're trying to address because obviously people want to know what they're paying for. So that's that's interesting. (laughs) Uh, Like I said, we might have to see uh, some of your learnings from that.
1: Yeah. Well, Um, it's interesting. The black box, (laughs) you describe it. It's just, it's an access to justice issue too, right? If people don't don't know what The law and means and how it applies to uh, them—it's—it's worse for everybody, you know, them and and the lawyer. So,
0: yeah, yeah, and it's a huge issue, right? Everyone's expected to abide by the law, but it's very difficult, even as a lawyer myself, to. Know what a lot of things mean. I, I'll, I'll be completely honest outside of a very narrow band, I'm very ignorant about the law and the provisions. And people, you know, when they meet you and they find out you're a lawyer, they'll ask you, you know, a family law question. I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> like, you know, your guests more than me. Yeah, yeah. It's always
1: family and criminals. I mean, your people who meet you it's like, oh, I've right. got this problem. It's like, you know, I don't know anything about that. I, other than one course in law school, that's the that's extent of my job. Exactly.
0: Knowledge. So did you find, uh, and before we jump into the more substantive part of this discussion, did you find becoming a lawyer, that obviously helped you on your entrepreneurial journey as well as in your career. We had a previous guest on that described a law degree as a Swiss army knife that can be uh, deployed in so many different ways, which I fully agree with. I'm just kind of wondering if that was your perspective, if that law degree is something that just kind of sat on the shelf and you didn't use, or if you've been able to take what you were taught and apply it in maybe some unorthodox areas.
1: Uh, well, definitely, definitely use it all the time, whether I practiced or not. It's funny, I, I've spoken to a lot of my colleagues at Thompson Writers, you know, if you had to have this job, you kind of, you have to have the law degree, you have to be a lawyer, uh, whether you've practiced or not, um, because you need to understand, you know, how lawyers think, how they, how the, the law is explained and how they practice and things like that. And so just in conversations I've had with some of my colleagues, it's, it's interesting that you don't realize it when you're going through the process of going through law school, but it teaches you a way of thinking and understanding right. how to accomplish certain tasks, for one thing, but also just, I think it's, it's something that is severely lacking in just the general population to our detriment as a society, as a nation, that I think the more education that people would have about the law and the legal system and how it works, mm-hmm. it can only help. And so you, you kind of take it for granted having gone through law school. It feels like you knew this already, but you certainly couldn't have possibly known it before you went to law school. But just through the, the process of understanding and how, how the legal system works and how to think in that way, it's definitely helpful.
0: Yeah, no, truer words, and that's kind of the funny thing is you think you didn't pick up anything in law school, but then you make the assumption that everyone knows what you're talking about, and I've I've made that mistake a few times where it's just, you, you explain something and you're assuming everyone knows what you're talking about, and you get blank <laughs> stares back at you. You're like, oh, right, sorry, of course. Why would you know that? And let's start. Let's back up a couple steps here. So, no, really interesting though, and obviously a, an interesting journey from law school to to where you are now, and I think that. that's. That's a perfect segue. So uh, can you please just give us a description of your startup and what problem you're trying to solve and how this opportunity uh, arose in the first place?
1: Sure. So the goal of Iris is essentially to be the source of all data for the bankruptcy and insolvency industry. So this is to allow professionals of all kinds who operate in the industry to make better decisions much faster and more efficiently. So the primary customers here are obviously insolvency lawyers or lawyers who touch on the insolvency area, but as well as them is the licensed insolvency trustees. And ultimately, there's another secondary market that I could talk about later. But the goal here is always to improve that end-to-end process. And for the IRS, the business is, is commercial insolvencies, especially those larger ones where there's millions of dollars at stake. You, you can't have that process take um, so long that it's that's depleting the the assets of those businesses
0: and that's so. a big problem right though and again this is actually a perfect example of an area i'm quite ignorant in even though I did take one class in law school in bankruptcy <laughs> and bankruptcy and as whole but it seems to me like it's very analogous to a litigation process in the and, and frankly, it is a litigation process. It may seem like this could be solved in a, in a few days, but these get dragged on for weeks, months, and even years. Is that the case? And is that causing pain in this sector?
1: Very much so. So to give you the, the, the perfect example that that everyone in the country would be familiar with and that I use when I'm trying to explain what I'm doing to to lay people who their eyes blaze over when i when i start talking about <laughs> insolvency law is Nortel it's, it's right. something that everybody in the country is familiar with and you know it dragged on and still in some in some respect is still dragging on for you know a decade and it's incredibly complex just because of the size of the business but also the cross border implications between Canada and the US and the UK and but over the span of time the, the parties eventually got reprimanded by the court for it taking so long and it mm. depleting the assets basically through their fees <laughs> um, more than anything. Right. And it's it that's an extreme example, obviously, but anything to, to speed along the process so that it's a better win for everybody. And you're right in that it is a litigation essentially, but it's kind of unique to practice areas where you've got, it's partially litigation because it's run through the courts, but in, especially in a restructuring context, there's this transactional negotiation going on between the parties, and it's, it's different from other types of litigation where it's not just two parties. You, know, you have a plaintiff and, uh, and a defendant. You've got the, um, the debtor company, who, the insolvent company and then you've got dozens or hundreds potentially of of creditors and other stakeholders and everybody is <laughs> needing to be represented right. for one thing and they all want to get save as much of their of the debt that they are owed as possible So whether that's through restructuring or at least being able to preserve enough of the value when you sell off all the assets and and sell it for pennies on a dollar, you you want those pennies to be as high as possible.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting you bring up Nortel because I'm based in Calgary. And so that was a huge company, (laughs) huge tech company, obviously, and one of the few uh, non-oil and gas kind of larger companies, especially back because this was... If I'm remembering correctly, like late nineties or early two thousands in that range when uh, all of this happened. And correct. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Mid two thousands. There you go. And yeah, I remember it was a huge deal. So that's really interesting. I didn't realize that process had dragged on so long. But kind of get back to Iris here and your product. So it sounds like this is a pretty fragmented space where there's a bunch of different players doing pieces of, of that puzzle. And maybe that's not working as efficiently as it should. And it, and these fees are getting incurred and obviously to the detriment of people holding or what could be the assets of the company. Is that what you're trying to bring together in essence with Iris?
1: Um, In some respects. So basically just to kind of describe it is that, you know, in law that you're working with precedent material, usually whether it's case law or, or what have you. And this is where the problem is in, in insolvency is that there are literally hundreds of thousands of court filings, supporting court filings from past insolvency that are, you know, they are not just the case law, which is obviously important when you're making legal arguments, but when you're trying to devise a strategy or for your client, whether you're representing the, the unionized employees or some supplier or the, the, Insolvent business themselves. It's more than just the the legal issues. It's the how to how to actually make this the practical matter of how do you actually make this work or how do you preserve the value or how is it going to work out to the benefit of everybody or or at least to the least poor outcome for everybody, I guess is the right. way of, of describing it. So you've got these reports of monitors or trustees, you've got motion records and orders and endorsements and affidavits, you know, that can, you know. Reams of of paper. So if you work in a a large firm, you might have precedents from insolvencies that your firm has worked on. And if you know who to ask in your firm, then you could be directed to a case from the past that might contain a document that could be similar to a case that you're currently working on that could be helpful for you know drafting a motion or devising your strategy. But it certainly won't be complete. It's still a matter of digging through hundreds of documents. They're not searchable because Unless you have a really advanced knowledge management system in your firm, then you're kind of going through paper or PDFs. And if you don't happen to work for a large firm with a decent database of these precedents, then you have to hope that you can stumble across something useful on one of the publicly available websites where these court filings are posted, which they have to be. It's a matter of law that they have to be made public. But there, it's just not good enough, you know. Right. You're relying on Google or some of the other uh, services out there that don't uh, that don't actually provide a cohesive database of being able to do real searches.
0: That's funny you mentioned that because I remember back when I was uh, practicing at the firm I was with, I, clients were sometimes horrified to learn that. Yeah. Sometimes I started my first line of search was Google, you know, because, yeah. and I think it's identifying the problem maybe that you're uh, hitting on here is that because, yeah, we had these other tools at our disposal and for sure they were great, but they weren't the easiest to use and and consolidating, like just trying to get that general overview. Sometimes it was difficult with some of these tools available to us because you didn't even really know what you were looking for
1: sometimes to start. So that's what actually I'm hearing, the, the, though, that's the perfect I'm sorry to interrupt oh, yeah, but you no you
0: don't please. even
1: know you don't even know what you're looking for is exactly the problem that you don't know what you're looking for you don't know how to find it and so if you're reading through you know hundreds of scanned PDF documents and of a case that you may have been directed to by a senior uh, partner or somebody like that then you hope to god that it'll help you but you know you're missing stuff but everybody else right. is missing stuff too so it's not an issue in that sense where you're going to get blindsided maybe but if somebody else has stumbled across something that you don't know about, then that's every lawyer's right. biggest fear, right? You, you, exactly. come, you come along and, uh, oh, so-and-so over across the table has has something that they've found that I, I've missed.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't read that is rarely a good answer to give to a judge for sure <laughs> or a trustee or whatever. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, Especially it, it in front of your client. Fly. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I, so it sounds like, though, what you're doing is just – bringing all that information together then in a more accessible way where a, a lawyer or, or trustee or whoever that may be, can find that can get the, the 360 degree overview of the issue and then be able to pull on the right threads in a more efficient way that can proceed these files in a quicker, more efficient manner and, and hopefully find a resolution that, that works for all parties as close as that's obviously possible.
1: Right, exactly. So what we've done is collected all of these available documents, made them machine readable for one thing, which is uh, (laughs) the first kind of big hurdle and putting them into a searchable database. So I know that this is something that the industry has been asking for for years, and it should appeal to just about every practitioner in Canada. There's a few thousand of them. So, but this is just step one. It's our MVP, which will hoping to launch our target is the end of October. So by the time this podcast drops, we should hopefully have a a product out there for people to see. Um, Excellent. Yeah.
0: So why has this not been addressed already? Why has that not existed prior to you? And what's preventing this from happening in the in
1: the profession? I guess the the simple answer is that it's hard. <laughs> you know, I've been working sure. on this for a couple of years <laughs> now, and it's it's hard. There are some competitors. There's always a competitor uh, for you know people are d- doing their workarounds. Like I said, if you work in a large firm, you might have a a, a database of precedents that your firm has worked on. Even Westlaw has a very small like one percent of of documents that's out there, and those are searchable. But no lawyer would would be satisfied with one percent of case law, for example. So right all these supporting documents, um, is uh, is it's a much larger universe than it's available. There are other services out there that allow you to maybe find a case that could be um, relevant to you based on the filing type, whether it's a CCAA or it's a receivership or, or just a straight up bankruptcy and by industry type, but then you're still having to go to the source, whether it's like the e y of the world or, or one of those uh, large trustee firms, and then go through the, the reams and reams of documents to find right. an actual document that would be useful for you. So this is <laughs> the super hard part is collecting everything because they're, they're spread so far and wide. It's not easy to collect a hundred thousand documents and make them machine readable uh-huh. and then create a search engine from scratch. It's difficult. So uh no kidding. Much less the goal of then en- envisioning a data analytics layer on top of, of the simple searches. So that's the, the roadmap beyond just the MVP. Absolutely. And so you, you sort of alluded to
0: it there, but what role does AI, machine learning, these types of things play in, in, in this process? Because uh, from our previous discussions, it sounds like that's going to be a, a fairly big
1: part of making this whole engine go. That is the, the, yeah, like I said, that's the roadmap, that's the dream. Um, just having some experience with data analytics. The idea is to, you know, extract relevant data from the documents from each of these cases and use AI and machine learning to um, identify the relevant data points, analyze the data, and then provide insights to practitioners on their current case. So we're not getting into the world of predicting, you know, bankruptcy outcomes or anything like that, but can certainly do some some forecasting and maybe allow professionals to see the most similar cases from the past based on their current situation um, or what the most desired outcome could be for their client, which could not be the same necessarily as from another stakeholder. But then try and get to an ability to reverse engineer that ideal outcome in a much Quicker time frame and create a workable strategy that will help everyone, and not just right. uh, you know a select few of the larger creditors, for example. And that kind of has the uh, benefit of broadening that potential market beyond just the lawyers and trustees, but people on the financial side, whether it be banks or lenders or private equity investors, and, and kind of adding this to their risk profile.
0: Right, and this sort of ties back into what we were chatting about at the start of the show, where uh, this sounds like an access to justice issue, once again, you know, where before, if you weren't one of the big players, it sounded like it was very difficult to operate effectively in this space. But with a software like yours, you know, it sounds like all of a sudden, a, a smaller firm could now punch it potentially the same level as one of the bigger players and, and be as effective when it comes uh, down to negotiating these outcomes.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Because you're right, if you're a large firm, you have a lot of resources to kind of throw at one of these cases that takes a lot of work a lot of uh, person hours to to do the research but if you're a smaller firm that's uh, representing one of the smaller creditors to a, a business and if there are 20 30 creditors and they all need independent representation. There's only so many large national law firms to, to go around, right. so obviously you, you can't get into conflicts right there. So exactly, not everybody is going to be able to to use the larger firm. So it's going to get spread around, and so you you don't want your Council to be at a disadvantage from a resources perspective, not being able to throw five associates or or articling students at this and being able to spend a thousand hours doing the research. If if it's just you and maybe one junior, you need to be able to do it as effectively as as the people across the table.
0: So you bring up a, a really important point there where when you talked about being able to throw bodies at this problem. One of the things with tech, obviously, is to increase efficiency. And one of the questions that usually quickly emerges is saying, okay, so what's going to happen to my job? How do you see, and I'm not trying to put you specifically on the spot here, but your company and, and legal tech in general, and, and frankly, tech in general, how do you see this playing out as far as people with in in the profession right now? Are people going to lose jobs? Are new jobs going to emerge as a result? Like, How does this play out? Because it's seems like if if I implement your system properly, I don't need to hire those five junior associates or article students or whatever. I can just use your product and therefore maybe there's fewer positions in this in this industry.
1: Yeah, I've, I have heard those questions before. And you're right, not just with mine. It, it, these things happen when we're talking about AI um, and applying AI to, to whatever right. service is being offered to lawyers. But I'm not sure if, like, am I going to be replaced is the right question to ask. I think it's more about will this replace some of the tasks that practitioners currently do? And the answer is, of course, it will. It'll replace the mind-numbing tasks that practitioners hate doing, which is why they assign it to their articling students. Um, But there's always going to be a need for the experienced practitioner to Um, advise their client and come up with strategies for successful outcomes and to negotiate and develop compelling cases uh, and things like that. So a solution like Iris or any other kind of AI based legal tech solution, it doesn't replace that aspect of lawyering. It replaces that mind numbing work that gets assigned to the half dozen associates. If you're fortunate enough to, to be in a large firm and reading through a thousand documents looking for something relevant. So so if you can do that in a fraction of the time, that's not to say you still don't need those lawyers, it means that you can assign those lawyers to do more valuable work and potentially to take on more clients because they're not all being assigned to this one file. You know, you can assign them across more cases that they wouldn't otherwise have the time to do.
0: You know, and I think that's such a an interesting point because what, what many, and frankly, what I didn't realize for a long time is that the amount of demand for legal services is so immense. Like It's it's difficult to even put a number on it because it's so huge, but so many people forego that legal help because obviously of the price tag. The kind of interesting thing is because, because they can't afford it, they try to DIY solution or whatever else, but... You know, with tech, and this is kind of one of the more exciting things, in my opinion, is that, like you said, okay, now we can take on more clients, and maybe that, depending on what type of firm they are or whatever, maybe that doesn't lower the the cost, but I almost guarantee you it will. Like, just like in every other. Space where tech has come in at first, you have like I remember when you know big screen TVs used to be like seven thousand dollars each for an entry point, and now you can get one at Costco for $350 that is way better quality than what these five ten thousand dollar TVs were 10 years ago, right? And in the same way, like obviously, each firm will kind of decide their own uh prices and how they want to operate, but it, it certainly seems to open up that opportunity to, like you said, to create more value and spend more time on things that actually matter matter rather than the mind numbing things that frankly, humans just don't do very well in general anyways, (laughs) and make you miserable and B, you know, just have that opportunity to say, okay, yeah, no, I can, because I can have a higher rotation through of clients. Maybe I don't need to try charge those premium prices every single time we can lower this because we've systematized this.
1: I can get these solutions easier. Is that kind of what you see? I, that's, that's one of the thing, I think there's a couple elements there that you raised, I think that are important. I guess the question is, is the cost related to the, the hourly rate? Or is the cost related to how many hours are being charged? So you could conceivably still charge your same hourly rate. Right. But if the file is only taking 10 hours versus 100 hours, right, then it's that price tag doesn't seem so prohibitive. But if your firm is still doing things the old way and they're like, sorry, this task just is so labor intensive that it takes this long to complete, then um, of course, it's going to cost a lot of money because you're paying lawyers to, to do it and they're charging you X number of dollars, hundreds of dollars per hour. Right. So that, you know, on the surface that may send a signal to the firms like, oh no, we're not going to be able to <laughs> bill out as many hours to this client and so therefore our top line is going down but no it's a volume play versus just the, the 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 pure hourly billable hours play so if you can churn through more more clients because you're you're not it sounds like it's kind of running them through the doors like in and out and it, that doesn't sound quite so so appealing to the client from the client side but you want your matter to be dealt with quickly and efficiently, right? You don't right. want it to drag on for six months if it can be done in a month.
0: Exactly. And I mean, that's one of the things that we run into here at Good Lawyer. You, what we have come to understand is that not every client wants the deluxe package. And they're like, look, I have this issue and I want this solved as quickly and as, as efficiently as possible. And now, of course, they expect quality legal work that, that goes without saying. And and that's something that we obviously strive to deliver every time. But sometimes like, I remember speaking with this uh, one client a while ago and he was expressing his frustration because he was trying to get a will together and he said, I can't get a quote for a will. That's like under $2,500 or something like that. And he's like, I don't want that. I want this basic (laughs) thing. Here's what I'm trying to do. I want to make sure this goes over here. That's pretty much my main and only concern. And he was having a tough time because what the lawyers were doing, and to their credit, they believe that they, you know, it's like, no, I need to hold this standard. I need to go all in for my clients and make sure that they're completely set up. But in that circumstance, that's not what he was looking for. And it was qu- quite frustrated not being able to find an, an easy solution to that. So I think that's really interesting that you said that churn or whatever, and that, yeah, that can come off wrong. But really, what that means is efficiency. And, and if you can get, The same job done quicker with less headaches. Who isn't going to want that? And I think most clients, especially after uh, they get a few reps in, can certainly appreciate that this is probably a better way in the long run.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a lot of it is going to be driven by the clients. Maybe not the small client who only needs a lawyer once in their life, but it'll be the kind of the larger clients who are on retainer or have their their firm on retainers, they know that there's no reason to send a half dozen juniors or articling students onto a file and going through reams of paper for thousands of hours when there's technology available to do that in a few minutes uh, or to spend a week drafting documents when there should be a perfect draft ready in a day because you've got a million presidents. And there are services out there that will do document drafting very quickly that doesn't require someone to go through and blackline everything. So there's, they're the ones, the clients have to adopt new technologies. They know they have to do it to survive in their businesses. So why, why am I not demanding that from my lawyers? They're going to be the ones to drive that change internally, I think. So there's just a lot of money tied up in doing things slowly and inefficiently totally. that it grinds the process <laughs> down to a, a slow walk. But nobody really enjoys that, I don't think.
0: No, certainly not. And I think you're exactly right, though. I don't think it's going to be uh, law firms who are making a ton of money at the moment. Leading the charge for reform because I think I think uh, they have a pretty good and likely will will ride that one out as long as possible. But and again, this is why I think it's so important that we be putting pressure, especially from the client side, on this. But I, I would be uh, remiss not to ask you just more as a general question here, um, especially with your background and designing products. What do you see in law or coming in law as far as like AI legal tech? You know, just in general, do you see this really making a a big difference? Because it seems like the the profession has been a little bit reluctant to really jump on that bandwagon and and introduce these cost saving and efficiency gaining technologies. Why is that? Or if you agree at all with that statement, and just what do you see coming down the road in the next,
1: you know, five to ten years? Um, I think yeah, there's there's definitely been a, a bit of a shift, I might say, in the last five. Five years, maybe more, I think firms are starting to realize the benefits. And much of it is probably driven by their clients who are (laughs) demanding, you know, maybe it's (laughs) alternative billing schemes. And so they have to be more efficient because they have to, they have to give them a, a set price for this transactional piece that you know the client knows it's been done a thousand times before. So there's no reason why you need to start from scratch. So I think on that side of things, I think the firms are starting to come around and also internally, they're starting to um, adopt, you know, you've know, you got KM offices within some of the larger firms and you've got technology officers now whose role it is is to identify where efficiencies could be had so that they can operate more efficiently. So from that aspect, I think things are definitely changing within the, the structure of these firms. At an individual level, maybe not every single lawyer is, is open to that so maybe that would be something that could change a little bit more is is an openness by individuals within law firms or or just right. you know, practitioners on how how their business operates but there are a lot of firms out there who want to use the latest technology to to do things better but there's this reluctance to be the first ones to try something sure new um, and to uh, admit that maybe the old way isn't as effective uh, <laughs> anymore so yeah. it's, that that's i think is that nobody wants to be the uh, in a kind of conservative and it's not just law firms it's you know, you know the accounting firms as well and, and banks yeah. and, and places like that they're inherently conservative for good reason in their minds but nobody wants to be the first ones to to dip their toes in the pool and try something out for the first time and and maybe have it you know, not work out as well. And and, uh, if they can just continue doing things, but no, I think there's a lot of really good services out there um, on, and I think it's coming in kind of slices. So, you know, Iris is one slice of a practice area that, that will hopefully uh, change that industry. You've got contract automation services out there that will, speed along the the document creation process uh, very significantly so and you've got other pra- kind of practice area niche products that i think that's that's where the the changes will probably happen because the large businesses like Thomson reuters and westlaw they target really big you know they want because they're <laughs> such a large company it needs to, to kind of target something that's going to address an issue for the entire industry which necessarily eliminates slices so they need to be taken up by smaller businesses like startups right so i think that's that's probably where you're going to see a lot of the innovation is is people with experience in a slice of a practice area or a role within a firm and identify okay you know what this is a small pain point but it could be very valuable i mean it's much easier for me as a smaller business to identify this and that just be the core of my business and 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 go forward. Perfect. No, great answer. And yeah,
0: I, I certainly know that law firms are usually not among the most well-known early adopters of new technologies. So <laughs> I, I think you're right there. It, but once that ball does get rolling, it which seems to be a bit slower than maybe some other uh, industries, but hopefully that will uh, result in some of these newer technologies and efficiencies being adopted. Now, I'm just cognizant of the time here, but I do have one more question for you. But before I do, uh, just any any last words on Iris and w- how people can find you, uh, or anything that we didn't touch on that you think that would be good to know for for especially the uh, people in the bankruptcy and insolvency space.
1: Um. Sure. No. Thanks. So, like I said, we'll be we're, the target is to launch our MVP by the end of October, which will be the collection of of all the documents in a searchable format. And then the roadmap, which I discussed, which, which is to adopt some machine learning and AI functionality. And yeah, our homepage is irisml.com, the ML standing for machine learning. So we haven't gotten that part yet, but that's, I've kind of held, held <laughs> my feet to the fire to make sure that we get there. Yeah, no, it's it, ultimately our, our 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 goal is to kind of prove this out here in Canada, but it's definitely a worldwide market because the US, UK, Europe, Asia, Mm -hmm. you know, there are insolvency regimes where data could be a key element uh, all across the world. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah. So my Final question before
0: I let you go here, and this is just a bit more putting back on your philosophical hat here, but mm-hmm. if there's one thing you could change about the legal profession, if you were a supreme dictator, say, and whatever you said was immediately impl- implemented and <laughs> perfectly implemented, there's no human element. <laughs> what would that one thing be? What is one thing that we can improve as lawyers and uh, practitioners in the legal profession?
1: Um, we touched on it a bit. I think the the openness to change and just and how the business operates and in, and in every aspect. So no more reluctance to put themselves out there as pioneers and to use anything that's untested. I kind of wish that would change a little bit. I understand why it probably won't, but if there was this kind of adventurous attitude in the profession as a whole, I think that would end up with us in a much better place a much more exciting place and i think people would respond to the idea of lawyers <laughs> a little better of, of not being a, kind of a stodgy old uh, old profession absolutely perfectly
0: said and uh, i think that's a, a perfect place to leave it off here so thank you very much for your time and obviously all the best with iris and we'll be uh watching your progress and yeah
1: all the best in the future thanks matt it's a lot of fun
0: If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash podcast, where you'll find every episode along with the show notes and resources. You can also sign up for Good Lawyer's newsletter that keeps you up to date on all the info and tools you need to turn your business into a rocket ship. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.